Well, good morning. I want to invite you to open into God's Word into Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. My name is Chad Gilbert. I have the great joy of serving as the senior pastor here at First Baptist New Orleans. And if you're a guest today, if you're in town for Mardi Gras, we want to say welcome to you. Thank you for being here, for prioritizing gathering with the body to worship this morning. And for those that brave traffic, and we'll brave traffic again in a little bit um, to be able to get home, especially you West Bank uh, members, thank you uh, for prioritizing just gathering with the body. Well, this morning kind of um, represents a, a shift in some focus. And, you know, we've got Mardi Gras on Tuesday, and then we've got Ash Wednesday on Wednesday. And a little bit of this, you know, for us, many of us that grew up as Baptist, or maybe you grew up unchurched. And so you didn't really grow up in a, in a church culture where maybe there was a heavy Catholic influence or something like that. Um, you can kind of look at this whole thing called Mardi Gras and, and this whole season of carnival and just say, what gifts? Well, in some ways, Christians are to blame. Well, let me kind of modify that a little bit. Um, the religious calendar is to blame, and sinful hearts are really as, is what is at stake, okay? So let me kind of describe it for you, because I think it's helpful sometimes for us to know the culture in which we're in. So we all know about Christmas. That's one that we all get right and celebrate on December 25th. And, and on the evening of Christmas Day begins the 12 days of Christmas. Now, we know that because many of us know the song, the 12 days of Christmas. You know, on the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a partridge and a pear tree. The rest of the song is about his recovery efforts um, for that decision to give to his true love a bird and a fruit tree. Um, and so, you know, that was just a joke. Um, so you keep going, and the 12 days of Christmas leads you up to January 6th. And what do we know we can eat on January 6th? King cake, yeah. So like, you know, the morning of um, January 6th, people are lined up at, at their favorite bakery to get a king cake. And so what gives with the king cake? Well, that represents this moment um, called Epiphany or, you know, or King's Day when, when all of a sudden the kings, the, the, the wise men in the, in the biblical narrative find Jesus. And so what's hidden inside the king cake? Little baby Jesus, okay? That's what that represents. And, and so this cake commemorates this finding Jesus, um, this searching for Christ and the kings that brought the king cake that then brings us into this period called Epiphany, um, which is a time of remembering the, the life and the works of Jesus, this, this kind of time of, of looking at his, um, you know, this, this movement that then brings us up this week to Ash Wednesday, which is a time of, of preparing um, through a season of what's called called Lent, of remembering what's coming then on Good Friday and then on Easter, the resurrection. And so there's this, there's this big religious calendar that is at play. And other traditions um, like Catholicism and then some of your um, other denominations that would be more like Episcopal or Anglican really lean into the church calendar. And these things are, are celebrated. Now, Baptists, by and large, have kind of done away with some of that, except we haven't. Um, we, we still honor a religious calendar. That's why we celebrate Christmas on the 25th. That's why we celebrate Easter not on a fixed day, but on a movable day uh, because we're following a religious calendar. And so we're still influenced heavily by this. But, but the thing for us to know about this is that Mardi Gras is not on the religious calendar. Mardi Gras is not a prescribed day um, that was given by the church as it developed a calendar to help believers to orient themselves and even their cadence of a yearly basis to God. 
Instead, Mardi Gras developed for a very different reason because it became part of Lent to give up something, to give up eating meat. And so Fat Tuesday, which is you know, French Mardi Gras, um, it was this time of indulging, of, of trying to eat as much meat as you could before you had to give it up for 40 days, leading all the way up to Good Friday and then Easter Sunday. And so you have all of these things going on. And, and so this speaks to something. It speaks to something very significant about uh, for us to think about today. And as we begin this journey over the next 40 days as the people of God, to orient ourselves to the cross. That's the whole point of Lent, is to orient us to the cross. And so I think it's important for us as God's people to ask the question, why the cross? Why the cross? So many times we don't really think about, why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to die such a painful death for us? Why did he have to to die at all? Couldn't our salvation have been accomplished in some other way? Why why there, outside of Jerusalem, outside of the temple area, there in Jerusalem on that specific spot, why there? Why is there this essential nature to, to blood throughout the Old Testament for the atonement of sin so that it was important that Jesus' blood would atone for our sin. Why? Why all these things? And so over the next seven weeks as a church, we're gonna be answering the question, why the cross? Why the cross? But I think it's important for us culturally to remember that it starts with Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras in us. Mardi Gras inside of us. Not Mardi Gras that we look at here in the, in, the, in the community. Mardi Gras that we know today is very different than it was even historically. It's really developed, especially some of the, the floats and all the throws and all those things. Those things have developed, and trust me, it's become big business, okay? And so there's a reason that a city like New Orleans that really has developed it. It's become a way of, of industry for us, uh, for economics, for there to be tourism, people to come here and buy our food and drink our drinks and all those kind of things. And so it's different than even it was. But at its core, this thing called Mardi Gras speaks to a human condition. What is it in us that makes us think that right before a time of really focusing on Jesus, we should pursue the flesh even more? What is it about us that would cause us to think that right before on a Wednesday, I schedule a time to go and get ashes on my head in order to demonstrate that I am repentant. Just as we see in the Old Testament, repentance with sackcloth and ashes to represent this real penance, that it would be okay that God in his sovereignty and in his plan for our lives would want for us to gratify the flesh right before then we turn back to him. There's nothing prescribed in his word that says that. Instead, his word speaks to a condition that every one of us find ourselves in, every human being, that Mardi Gras in some ways encapsulates and puts forward. And so with that understanding of of Mardi Gras and what it represents and how we can use it as God's people even today to communicate about a religious calendar and even help orient the people standing next to us at a parade to the living God, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of his living word from Ephesians chapter 2 as you hear verses 1 through 10. This is Paul having just celebrated in chapter 1 the living Christ. 
the one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, the one who has saved us according to the plan of God, the one who has secured us by his Holy Spirit, the one that he is praying to that will expand our understanding of this great salvation, he then turns to this reminder for you and for me, for the people of God from Ephesians chapter two and says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world. According to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the, dis- in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Father, I pray that today through the preaching of your word, you would orient us once again in a very specific way as you've done with believers for thousands of years to the cross of Jesus Christ. We know we're not supposed to lose focus, but Lord, sometimes through these intentional times of focus, it helps us for the rest of the year to retain a focus on Christ, to fix our eyes on him. And so, Lord, as we now ask this question of your word, as we come to you, the living God, and ask for you to speak, would you speak with power through your word? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. One of the things that excites me is when I hear testimonies like I heard yesterday of one of you, one of the families of our church, out at a parade in the city, doing exactly what you and I are called to do, engaging the culture in a way that leads them to Christ. I heard the the testimony from one of you yesterday of being at a parade and engaging with a family with four young children and having a wonderful time of meeting them, getting to spend time with them, and then inviting them to church with the anticipation that they would definitely come. So don't miss how God can redeem even something, a season like Mardi Gras for his glory and for the good of other people. But today we look and we ask this question, why the cross And this religious calendar symbol reminds us of this. Ephesians 2.1 is our answer. For we were dead in our trespasses and sin. See, we're going to be answering the question each week in a specific way because the answers to the question, why the cross, are many. The Bible points to it in many different ways from the Old Testament and the New. And so we're going to be walking through and seeing seven specific answers. But today... By context of this passage, we are reminded that the reason for the cross is because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. This orients us once again as the people of God into a position of humility of remembering our own fallenness. It's easy in times like this to be able to look out in a city and to say, they are the fallen ones. Uh, you know, the ones that are in the, in, the, in the streets of the French Quarter doing really bad things, they are the fallen ones. But Paul reminds us to have a heart that says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now he's going to say, like the rest, but sometimes there's a warning here right out of the gate that he's reminding us that sometimes we can forget 
especially as we go on year after year with the Lord, and hopefully our lives become more and more holy, characterized by God and by godliness, that sometimes we can forget from the depths from which he pulled us. We can forget that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. We were once the one in the grave needing desperately his rescue of us. And so I hope that today you will be reoriented through the humility of remembering that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And that's why Christ died. You see, inherent in the context of this passage, when he talks about in verse 6, he also raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. That idea of being raised with Christ implies the death of Christ. We've been buried with him. Paul says so explicitly in his writings that we have been buried with Christ, therefore raised with him. He makes this point very clear. And we'll look at a a similar passage where he expounds this in Colossians in a few moments in chapter 3. But it's important for us to see that the context that Paul is communicating is the gospel. He's saying that Christ was crucified, and the reason that he was crucified was because we were dead in our trespasses and sin. So our condition, as we begin to unpack, what does that mean? What does it mean for us to be dead in our trespasses and sins? Because you might say, well, I was alive. I was walking around. I was breathing in air. I was eating food. I was going to work. I was doing all these things. I was alive. I wasn't dead. Well, there is a condition more serious than just the outward appearance of life that meets every person that's called spiritual death. It's a very serious condition that can only be treated by Christ and by Christ alone. And it's a condition that Paul unpacks for us in these few verses that I want us to remember and to see again fresh today. First of all, our condition was spiritual slavery. Our condition was spiritual slavery. Look at the way that he says it in verse 2. He says, In which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. What Paul is making clear here is that there is a ruler to which you were submitting, that you and I were under his domain and his rulership that was at work. These are good moments for us to use this language to help us to remember the dire condition in which we found ourselves. Jupiter Hammond, the first published African-American poet who lived from 1711 to somewhere between 1790 and 1806, speaks of this passage in this way. Writing about his life, we read, in his admonition to to enslaved Africans, speaking to those who were in slavery in what is now the United States of America, he wrote to them, And spoke and preached to them to cease swearing and taking God's name in vain. He says that those who do such things are under the power of Satan, who as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5.8. And those, and who is also the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Quoting from our text in Ephesians 2. According to Hammond, Satan takes captive people who swear and take the Lord's name in vain because they are being taken captive by him at his will. 
At first, Hammond directs this language to enslaved Africans in his audience, but he implicitly aims this censor to the white masters too, since he openly acknowledges that they swear and take God's name in vain. He writes further on that the enslaved Africans excuse that because their masters swear that they can do it and that it, is not, it, that it does not legitimate the action. In this censor, he tacitly chastises his white addressees who do swear and so underscores his own argument that they are under the power of the devil and that Satan has taken them captive since all who profane are serving the devil. This all, Hammond declares, includes the white slave owners. In fact, then, it is not blacks who are de facto children of the devil, as some of the pro-slavery camp believe, but whites themselves who through their actions demonstrate their own capacity to, to this form of being. Hammond urges his fellow Africans to resist following in the slave owner's footsteps and to demonstrate a higher religious life that Hammond views the white owners as under the power of the devil is clearly seen in his appeal to the eschatological judgment by which he encourages his audience, both black and white, to take heed of his words. To God, we must give an account for every idle word that we speak. He will bring us all, rich and poor, white and black, to his judgment seat. Our slavery will be in an end, and though ever so mean, Low and despised in this world, we shall sit with God in his kingdom as kings and priests and rejoice forever and ever. Do not then, my dear friends, take God's holy name in vain or speak profanely in any way. Let not the example of others lead you into sin, but reverence and fear that is that great and fearful name on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's the point of Hammond's communications in the early 1700s? It was this, that there was a dominant culture in which the main audience he was speaking to, enslaved Africans, lived. And they had begun to believe the lie that because the dominant culture would take God's name in vain, that somehow that made it permissible for they themselves to do it as well. But he says, it is not to be so. Poor or rich, white or black, he says, we will all stand before his judgment seat one day. He sets things in view by stepping back and looking to Christ and to Christ crucified. He steps back and puts things in perspective to say that one day this crucified Christ, who's now resurrected, who's ascended into heaven, will one day return and every one of us will stand before him. And so he cautions his own people to not allow the dominant culture to be what directs them in their day but instead to live for the one that is only worth living. Brothers and sisters, that admonition is for you and I today. We live in a place where there is a dominant culture. And as Hammond so articulately says, it is a culture often defined by the evil one, by Satan himself who determines the agenda, who determines what the strategy will be. And if we are not mindful, you and I too can also fall into a dominant culture regardless of what its emphasis may be, of regardless of who characterizes the dominant culture, that like Hammond spoke then, you and I need to be reminded that we are called to live a holy life. We are called to live differently in our day. And what Paul communicates here is that while we are in spiritual slavery, that is no excuse 
that is no excuse for you and I to say that we remain slaves to our culture. Spiritual slavery was our condition. Just as slavery was a condition in the first century, just as slavery was a condition in these United States, just as slavery continues to be an issue and a human condition throughout the world today, we need to understand that that is only but a sign pointing to a deeper spiritual slavery that every one of us once found ourselves in in desperate need of liberation. Our condition was spiritual slavery, but secondly, Paul goes on to say, our, our condition was universal. There was not a single person who was outside of the scope of this condition of spiritual death and of spiritual slavery. He says it in verse three, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. There's an argument that often goes this way when we talk about evangelism and the need to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. As of today, there's about 7,423 unreached people groups. And what that means is we've identified groups where there's less than 2% of the population where there is access that, that have the gospel and are able to communicate it to others. And so what this means explicitly is that there's very little statistical odds that someone in that culture is going to hear the gospel. But some will tell you and will try to convince you that those who have never heard the gospel will be fine because they can only be held accountable for what they understood in this life and that whatever they did have access to, as long as they were faithful to that, to whatever understanding, whatever they conceived God to be, as long as they were faithful to that, then God will know and will simply pass over that ignorance. And in a certain way, what we're essentially saying is that there are people in the world today who basically are innocent. They're, they're without the, 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 the sin that, that this passage speaks to. And I want you to know something, that if there is a person right now in one of those 7,423 unreached people groups that don't have the gospel and they truly are innocent, they're without sin, then they absolutely will go to heaven. They'll absolutely pass right into God's presence. They'll have no need for the death of Jesus Christ because they have no sin. Brothers and sisters, there is no person in one of the 7,423 people groups who is without sin. The argument is built up as something to, to distract us when it's speaking of someone that doesn't exist. Paul says, in which we all previously lived. All. He's speaking to people who just previous to his coming there had no access to the gospel. And many of them weren't even Jews to where they knew the Old Testament. These are Gentile people who are worshiping all kinds of gods. And he comes to them, and he says, we were all spiritually dead. We were all spiritually slaves. And so we all needed this work of Jesus Christ. And so brothers and sisters, we need to know that there is an urgency among the 7,423 people groups in the world today with little to no access to the gospel because apart from the gospel, they will perish forever without hope, without God. They'll be separated from him in an eternal fires of hell. 
And you say, Chad, like that's really harsh language. It's a really harsh reality. But the good news is this. We have access unlike ever before to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. In the span of just 24 hours, I can be on the opposite side of the world, deep into the recesses of places that used to take sometimes even a year to get to from this part of the world, just in 24 hours. I'm so thrilled that we are taking another trip to go to the places of North Africa, among unreached people groups there where there's only a few known believers in this part of North Africa to be able to bring the gospel in order to encourage the few believers that are there and to be part of what God is doing among the nations. Because what his word makes clear in Revelations chapter five and chapter seven is that one day there will be people from every nation, every tribe and tongue. And so our mission is not in vain. We do not labor for nothing. God has promised that one day there will be people from these 7,423 people groups. And so we can go to them and hope that maybe not in our day, maybe not in our lifetime, but one day there will be people who respond to the gospel. So we go with great hope, but we go because the condition is dire. There is spiritual death in these places. There is spiritual slavery in these places. And there is a great need among every nation because our condition is universal. Third, we see this, our condition was willful disobedience. Many times when we use the, the expression spiritual slavery and what it communicates, it can almost make it seem like I, I had no choice. Everything that I did wrong, I, I was just, you know, Satan was making me do it. I mean, have you ever used that argument maybe when you were a kid, when you did something wrong, and then you tried to, to blame your sibling. Well, he, he made me do it. She made me do it. How'd that work out for you as a child? Usually not so well. Just because other children were doing it, just because you were being coaxed along to do it, any guardian, any supervisor is gonna sit you down and say, you are responsible for your actions. And Paul here makes very clear as he continues on in this passage in verse three, he says, and he said, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, and then this part, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. In other words, my body wanted it, and so I did it. My, my, my thoughts, you know, conceived of something I could do, and then I acted on those thoughts. So many times that's how it can be. If you're struggling with addiction in this room today, know that you're, you don't suffer alone. You're in, you're in good company with those who are, who are really wanting to walk with you through addiction. And addiction manifests itself in all kinds of ways. It can be an addiction to a substance. We know that we live in an opiate crisis in our world today. If you're here today and you're struggling with, with sometimes prescription drugs or pills or things like that, don't walk alone. Don't walk in shame. If you're watching from home today, know that there are people here who understand, who don't judge you and look down on you and condemn you because of your addiction. But instead, we know that there is hope in Christ, but that there's also excellent medical intervention that can take place to be able to walk with you as you experience freedom in Christ. Sometimes addiction isn't to maybe an opiate, maybe it's to, to something else that gives pleasure. Many times in our culture today, pornography, especially among men and, and, and ever-increasing numbers among women, becomes this really prevalent addiction. 
something that people can't just seem to get a control over. And every time they, they think about looking at something they shouldn't look at, they, they can't get it out of their head until they do it. Notice how the, the slavery goes with the, 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 the desire. There's part of you that's wanting to look at something you shouldn't look at, but then there's also part of you that's saying, I, I know I shouldn't look at this, but many times we give in to that inclination and that desire. Addictions to substances like alcohol, addictions to, 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 to things that are good like food, but eating too much of it in order to, to, to be comforted and to find fulfillment in this life. Addictions come in and they creep in in all of these ways and they destroy our lives. They destroy the relationships that we have with other people. Gambling addictions. I mean, you name it, the addictions are many that come in and begin to choke out a healthy life, that, that choke out a healthy self-respect, that, that cause us to, to pull back in isolation. But Paul is helping us to understand that that was, was part of our sinful condition. You see, he's speaking in past terms here. He's speaking about where we used to reside, what used to be the case. And what that means now for you and I who are in Christ is that there is a freedom that is available. But please hear me. This is not just some spiritual rough-up moment where you come in and say, well, you just need to have more faith to be able to kick that addiction. For too long, pastors have used that language, and all it's done is drive people into deeper addiction. And so I want, to hear, I want you to hear me say today that if right now you're struggling with addiction to any of the things that I've just said or something else that I missed because there's so many, please, the first step for you is to just be honest with God. Just start there. Just start with God. Just admitting to him that you're powerless over your addiction. Just start there with God. I'm powerless over my addiction. That's where you start that's where you need to start is just being honest with God about where you are and, and acknowledging it before him. And then I trust that God in his grace will begin to meet your need, meet you in your need in ways with the body and with, with support from a counselor or maybe a medical provider, whatever it is that you're needing in that moment to be able to walk in a life that is holy. But don't miss this. There's someone sitting in this room today that has not given their life to Jesus Christ. And it is this issue of why we do what we know we shouldn't do that I think is one of the, 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 the greatest apologetics of our day. Why is it? Why is it that if you are in control, if you're saying, you know, I don't need Christ, Christ is the crutch Jesus is just something for weak people. If that's you to hear in here today or you're watching from home and you're saying that to yourself, that, that this whole Christianity thing is a crutch, then why is it that you can't control yourself when there are things that you know you shouldn't do, but you do it anyway? Because so much of our culture says that if we could just educate people better, if people just knew what was right, and how to treat people right, and, and, and what the right things are, then they wouldn't do it anymore. How's that working out for you? How's that working out for our culture just to, to get smarter, just to be communicated more that here's the rules, do it? No, 
every time we add a rule, we break it. Every time we come up with a new law to prevent something bad from happening, we come up with a way around it. And what it communicates and and speaks to is that there is within us a willful disobedience that can be characterized this this way, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And then Paul concludes the description with this, without hope, he says it this way, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. The idea here is this hopeless situation. You think about the, the hopeless estate of a child. A child is absolutely defenseless. A, a child, if there's something really serious going on, they can't defend themselves. They can't, they can't get themselves out of a pinch. They, they can't fix the dilemma that they're in. And he's helping us to understand something about our ability because so many times we wanna be stronger than the condition that we find ourselves in. If you are not a follower of Jesus in this room today, know that you were brought here by God today to hear this, that he is not asking you to man up or woman up over your situation and to conquer all your bad habits. That's what the world is constantly pushing on you, is that you've just gotta, you've just gotta muscle up, you just gotta muster that inner strength and, and be bigger in your thoughts than, than whatever the problem is. But what God in his grace is communicating to you and to me is that we are like children. And worse than just being children, we're children under wrath. In other words, like there's this incredible, terrible situation that's just barreling toward us. And there's nothing that we can do. Nothing that we, that we can do but God, but God. This is the turning point of this passage. This becomes the turning point for all of the gospel. The good news is that we can't. We're like children under wrath. We're like slaves to sin. We're like dead people buried in sin and trespasses. But God, but God, it says, but God who is rich in mercy, he, he's loaded with mercy to give to you and to me. He, he wants to give it. And you say, well, what merits this love? What merits this incredible mercy? It's his own love. Look what Paul says. But God, who's rich in mercy because of the great love that he had for us. In other words, it wasn't because, because of just how loving you are, how cute you are, or what you could do for him, what what assets you had to offer his kingdom, none of that. His love is based on him being loving. His mercy to you is based on him being merciful. The whole passage reorients us to God and to who God is. Brothers and sisters, we don't care about God. We don't care about his great mercy. We don't care about his great love when we forget just how bad off we are. There's something happening right now in our country that's uh, the conversation for a lot of folks at Asbury Seminary. It's a Methodist school. And what's happening right there, right now, is what's being considered a a revival. And what it's being characterized by is not some well-known dynamic speaker who's coming in and just wowing the crowd. 
It's, a, it's not characterized by some incredible band that's there that, you know, everybody's listening on to, to the radio and everybody's, you know, just really jazzed up by the music. No, it's being characterized by men and women repenting. Men and women acknowledging their own sinfulness and the great mercy of God. It's being characterized by testimony of God's deliverance and what God is doing. It's being characterized by literal, like almost these, these unending worship services that's now going on in like its 12th or 13th day of continuous worship of people just humbling themselves before God and praying and weeping and loving God. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but that's, that's the experience that I want for every one of us is to experience the power of God, a return to God. It's not about a specific nation, whether it's America or Canada or Mexico, returning to God. It's about the people of God returning to God. That's where the revivals have always begun, is when the people of God have humbled themselves and prayed. It's not about a government policy change or we can just get the right guy in the White House. It's not about those things. We've made it about those things. We've conflated the two things and it's caused all measure of confusion, all measure of, of, of tension and anger and, and, and disheartening and all of these things. And it's because we, we stopped seeking the Lord. We stopped acknowledging as Paul does right here. These are two believers who have been led to Christ by Paul himself, discipled by Paul himself. He was with them for several years teaching them God's word. These are people that would be the most mature of any believers that we could have known on the face of the earth. And he's reminding them of their sinfulness and of their need for Christ. And so as he does this, he then reminds them that in contrast to their spiritual slavery, they have now been set free through forgiveness by cross on the Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In contrast to this universal condition of sinfulness and being dead in trespasses and sins, he reminds us that God's love is for all who would believe. That for God so loved the world, John says, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He, he, he's communicating something in Revelation chapter 5 and chapter 7, this same John, that, that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue are gathered around the throne worshiping the lamb that was slain. This is important for us to understand that this gospel is now for all people without distinction. In contrast to our willful disobedience, we see that God now changes our will and causes us to live and to walk in a different way. In Colossians chapter 3, in a passage that's very similar to the one that we're in today, we read this beginning in verse 1. So, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them, but now put away the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. 
Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ, there is neither Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all in all. This is the new reality. This is the newness of our will. This is why we want there to be unity in the body. He has changed our hearts. There is a new self. He has put off the old self and put on the new. And in contrast to not having hope, he gives us the gospel. This is how he says it in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good, work, good works, which he had pre prepared ahead of time for us to do. The good news of the gospel replaces a hopelessness. The liberation of the gospel sets those that were bound to sin, bound to their trespasses, under the rule of the air, it sets them free. And for those who were dead in their trespasses and sins, it gives us life. You may be here today, and maybe you came here just because you were invited by a friend. Maybe you just came here because you have been feeling guilty. Know this, that God was at work in that moment. God was at work in that invitation. God was at work in that feeling of, 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 of sorrow over maybe a condition in your life, leading you to this place so that you could hear this good news, that you are saved by grace through faith, not by your works, so you can't brag and nobody else can either because that's the only way God saves. There's no one in this room who's been saved because of what a good person they were or because of how educated they were or how generous they were or how, how selfless they were in serving others. No one was saved because of that. But many of the people that you'll meet in this room, their lives have been changed and they are generous and they are selfless and they are of that character that says that there is no distinction for those in Christ. It's a character that causes them to go into our city and among the nations to do the good works that God prepared ahead of time for them to do. And you look at that and you might be confused for a moment to think that they're earning their way to heaven. No, that's not our story. That's not the message we proclaim. We proclaim that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, but God, but God saved us. You see, that happened in my life when I was 16 years old. I realized that I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And so what I did when I was 16 is I just simply got honest with God and I admitted down on my knees in a posture of surrender, just saying a prayer like this, God, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that you gave Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. And so I'm asking you to forgive me today, to take away all of my sin. And I want Jesus to be the king of my life. It wasn't like something crazy happened in that moment. The wind didn't start blowing or trees fall over or something like that. But I got up from my knees in the woods of Mississippi that day. 
and I was a new creation. And the first fruits of what he had done and changed in me was all of a sudden there was a love for God that was not there before. Sure, I had respect for religion and sure I knew some of the Bible stories, but I didn't love God. That was the very first thing that God changed in me was a love for him. You know, sometimes the way we can know that we've wandered into sin is that our love for God grows cold. Maybe you're here today as a follower of Jesus Christ, but your love for, for God has grown cold. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's not the case anymore. So what you may need to do today is just to come to these steps and just spend some time just repenting and being honest with God about your sinfulness asking him to forgive you, to wash you clean, to remind you of the power of the gospel once again so that your love for God grows. But there may be someone here today that's never, never in your life had that moment like I did when I was 16 of just being honest with God, asking him to forgive me of my sin and giving my life to him. If that's you today, I'm gonna invite you to come forward during this time of response. I'll be standing right here and I would love nothing more than to pray with you as you trust Jesus to save you by his grace. Let's all stand together. Father, I pray that in this moment, there would be true repentance in our lives. That we would not be so proud as to not come clean with you, God, about something that's been hidden in our life. Because Lord, your mercy, your mercies are new every morning. So Lord, we're falling on your mercy this morning. But Lord, for the one in this room today who's never trusted Christ, I pray today would be the day that they experience new life. In Jesus' name we pray. You respond now in this time of response.